Welcome back, guys, to Grant's Political Daybreak. I'm your host, Grant Ace, and I'm sorry that this episode wasn't uh, posted this morning, but it's here nonetheless. I just, you know, got lazy, so I didn't post this morning. I'm here anyway today, and I'm going to break down some of uh, yesterday's political news, and then obviously today's political news will be out tomorrow morning, as usual. But I just want to start off first uh, by saying thank you, and uh, make sure to follow, uh, like, and uh, continue to just follow up uh, each day for my new uploads if you want to stay uh, up to date with the latest American politics and just major politics that are happening in the world too. Because like I'm not only limited to American politics, but that's my main focus for this podcast, if that makes sense. Starting right off, let's go into the, the meeting that Biden and Xi, but the leaders met in California uh on Tuesday, and they had a pretty productive meeting for the most part. So productive that Xi has promised to send pandas to the U.S. in a sign of friendship, as a symbol of friendship. So that's kind of cool. So I think that we're heading in the positive direction in terms of China and uh, uh, the U.S.'s relations with each other. But this is some of the things that the leaders said about each other and about the countries. Basically, Xi said... Uh, China has no plans or surpass the tour. But G said China has no plans to surpass or unseat the United States and the United States should not scheme to suppress or contain China. And the other thing that G said is that both sides should understand each other's principles and bottom lines, not make or stir up trouble to cross boundaries, but instead communicate more, have more dialogue and more discussions and handle differences and accidents calmly. And this comes in the wake of obviously this past year when the uh, spy Chinese spy balloon ended up crossing almost basically the entire United States. And basically, our relations with China has been rocky because of that and because of Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan um, just to kind of like, you know, use that against China in terms of like, oh, well, guess what? You're not going to do anything with Taiwan because I'm here. Um, but basically, China and the U.S. has always been at odds, obviously, because they run on totally different ideologies in terms of what they believe works as a government system. Basically, the agreements that Biden G had over their course of talking to each other for four hours in California was just the fact of like Biden G agreed that if one of them calls each other, the other one must pick up. Because the thing is, is that in order for a relationship to work, there has to be communication. So they really want their militaries to be in open communication with each other because for a while, both militaries have not been in clear communication with each other. They're basically not allowed to talk to each other in terms of like, uh, in terms of like sharing information or trying to avert crises or try to, uh, fix accidents that ha may happen and stuff like that, especially like in the South China Sea and near Japan and in the Pacific waters in general. The main thing is, though, is that they both agree to keep communications open because that's the best way to actually prevent bad things from happening, especially if there's accidents. Like in this case, the Chinese spy balloon that happened this past year. And the thing is, is that Biden said at, at the time, he said, no, I'm serious. That's what makes it a great, great embarrassment for dictators when they didn't know what happened. Because Xi in China basically made up that, oh, well, we didn't know that spy balloon was above, you know, the United States. And the thing is, I could believe that they didn't know because, I mean, how many assets does a, does a country like China have in terms of like, you know, weather balloons or spy balloons or spy craft or planes or just military equipment in general? And 
especially with a spy balloon, like for instance, I feel like that could easily just float away and just stop working. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to be like defend China or defend Xi and what they did because I don't because this is the thing. I don't know what to think of whether they actually meant to send a spy balloon over to the U.S. Do I would I be surprised? No, but it comes down to the fact that it seems like Xi in China wants to be able to make this place, make the world, this, that's what I mean by this place, a better place for the U.S. and Chinese relations to exist. That both countries can exist in the same world. Um, because Xi, China, and the United States, and Biden really want to make this relationship work. Because ultimately, it's we're so concerned about China starting a war, invading Taiwan, and all these different things. But at this point, they, they're more concerned about their economic development and continuing that rise in economic development because at this point, their economy is becoming much more effective and much more, like their economy basically is growing a lot faster than our own economy. And not only that, but if you think about it, it is kind of out of China's interest to really start a war or to get into a war. And that's why, like for instance, when the Ukraine-Russia war happened and when it first happened, and even throughout the whole escapade in these past like two, three years, China like supports Russia just because they're allies, but they also are kind of like, oh, well, I don't know why you're doing this because, you know, <laughs> the way the Chinese see it is that, guess what? There's more important things rather than just like taking over countries and, you know, gaining power. Like the most important thing to China right now is their influence over, you know, the Western world or um, especially the Asian continent and trying to build up their economic status in the world by also like, for instance, China made a deal with Afghanistan saying, hey, listen, we'll build your infrastructure because the, when the Taliban took over, they didn't really know how to implement structure and infrastructure for their country. So they kind of made a deal with China saying, hey, listen, you make our infrastructure and then we'll pay you back in terms of like um, whatever. And basically, the long story is, is that if the Taliban and if people and businessmen in uh, Afghanistan can't pay China back, China basically owns those buildings forever. So either way, China is going to make money from all of these this uh, economic infrastructure that they're building in other countries because these countries are so poor and therefore can't build their own. Um, another thing that the both countries, both the United States and China, decided to agree upon was to damp the ability for people to make fentanyl because fentanyl has been a huge issue uh, for the United States, especially ever since the open border crisis began, uh, but also in China. Both countries are suffering because of it, and all countries really in the world are suffering because of, because of the ability people have to make fentanyl and whatnot. So both leaders have pledged to really try to crack down on people trying to develop fentanyl and not only develop fentanyl, but also make it harder for people to get the materials that you know, are used to make fentanyl and whatnot. So moving on now, I just want to highlight these developments. It's not really like an update, um, but it is an update because, I mean, by now, most people who follow the news know that Israel invaded the Al-Shifa hospital in uh, Gaza, and they found uh, things left over by Hamas, like ammunition, gear, and stuff like that. Just like standard things, nothing crazy or serious, but just like standard weapons and things that you would like grab and go and fight, you know. During this entire time, Israel has become very um, heavily scrutinized in the way they are like going into Gaza 
and trying not to kill civilians in the process because they're trying to only kill Hamas terrorists. And in a CBS interview, one of the Israeli men, an anonymous source, because he didn't want to show his face, but he was still like recorded on camera. I just you couldn't see his face. But basically, he wanted to, he wanted to talk about how Israel is trying to prevent uh, civilian casualties. Basically, and basically he was saying how sometimes we are tricked and sometimes we aren't doing a good job protecting civilians because of Hamas. And this is due to Hamas dressing their own terrorists up as regular citizens. So one, they blend into the crowd and they can easily attack. And two, so that uh, IDF soldiers and IDF forces get really confused because they're like, wait, who is like the people shooting at us right now? Or like, for instance, in this case, uh of what this specific uh, soldier is talking about, this anonymous soldier is talking about it with CBS, is the fact that, guess what? Hamas is so evil to the fact that they not only use people as human shields, but they're willing to even use Al-Shifa Hospital, a hospital, mind you, that has sick children, that has sick people, that has dying children, that has children who need intensive care, and infants, the infants who needed intensive care. So it's just the fact that All of this thing, like the thing is, is that war is not supposed to be pretty at all. And it's sad and it's, it really breaks your heart. It's not supposed to be good, if that makes sense. But Israel is totally in the right in terms of like defending itself and trying to hunt down the Hamas terrorists who have done this to their own country. Um, And I feel like the hardest part is, is that no matter how great your country is, no matter how good and skilled and resourceful your military is, there will always be civilian casualties of some kind. And that's just a given in war. It's terrible. And it's not even about like the end defines, the end justifies the means. It's not even about that because people will say, oh, well, you're one of those people that believe in the end justifies the means. It's not really about that. It's about the fact that an evil has been done. Justice needs to be served out. And there's a, like, honestly, even like, it's like this. There's a time for war and a time for peace. There's a time for everything in life. And I'm not saying that war is a good in a certain situation. It is a way of dealing with evil terrorists, evil nations, and evil people who mean harm to many people. That's the reason why war exists, to get rid of the evil of a nation that has gone under. In this, when you think of these interviews done with Israeli soldiers and with people who are not sure what to do really in these situations, know that, first of all, that they're human. And second of all, if we try to give Hamas a ceasefire, all those more people die, really, because it gives Hamas more time to strike again. And it's not even about protecting only Israeli life. It's also about protecting Palestinian life, because at the end of the day, Letting Hamas, like, let's say, let's say Israel started a ceasefire today, right? Right this second. The problem with that is, is that as soon as they do that, it gives Hamas the ability to strike Israeli forces. And in the process, since they raise Israeli forces are beside civilians, Palestinian civilians, like very, very close by, like within like a feet, literally in some areas, that gives Hamas the opportunity to not only harm Israel again, but to also harm their own citizens because they literally said they do not care about their citizens. The only reason they have a country, first of all, is so that they can use citizens as a human shield because the UN is obligated to protect them. So I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's just a sad thing that's happening. Obviously, uh, children, and innocent people 
dying because of this treachery by Hamas. But it's also within Israel's power to be able to set the area up for success for the future in terms of uh, defending Israel and defending the people of Gaza so that they could, they too eventually can rise up and make Gaza into a better country. Um, and obviously right now is such a dark time for them. It's just the fact that, as I said, war is for a time and there will be peace. And next up, I want to talk about Prime Minister Sunak's proposal to deport illegal immigrants from the UK to Rwanda. Now, the thing is, is that you might be asking, wait, well, what is this about? So the world report about Rwanda, it talks about how uh, in April, the United Kingdom and, and Rwandan governments announced the signing of a new asylum partnership agreement under which the UK plans to expel, expel to Rwanda people seeking asylum in the UK through irregular routes. Under the agreement, asylum seekers sent to Rwanda would be processed under Rwanda's asylum system and if recognizes refugees, granted refugee status there with Rwanda otherwise handling rejected claims. The plan, which is an abrogation of the UK's international responsibilities and obligations to asylum seekers and refugees, was challenged in a UK court. And that's what I'm talking about now, which happened yesterday. Um, basically, Sunak made this deal and, you know, conservatives in the UK made this deal with Rwanda to basically be like, hey, listen, once we deport uh, illegal immigrants who are seeking asylum in the UK, they have to go to your country first. And then once you approve them under your standards in terms of like constitutes asylum in your country, then we'll accept them into the UK as an asylum. Uh, but basically a court blocked uh, the efforts by uh, Sunak and conservatives in the UK to actually make this plan a reality because uh, for a while they were actually starting to do it, like to actually send people on planes to Rwanda to be processed into the asylum process. But the problem is, is that the European Conventions of Human Rights basically has said, uh, basically they, ha they have this loose rule that basically says, oh, it's wrong for countries to use other countries as uh, asylum seeking entries and whatnot. And because of that, the court in the UK basically ruled that Sunak could not do this and none of the conservatives could do this to people seeking asylum in the UK. But these are some of the things that Sunak and the, and, and the UK conservatives could do to bypass the court's ruling. So the first thing is leave the European Convention on Human Rights because that's the thing blocking the actual proposal of deporting illegal immigrants into Rwanda. Another thing they could do is override international treaties blocking the Rwanda plan. So basically like just getting rid of some international treaties uh, that are blocking this and then send migrants to another country so they could pick a different country to do this deal with or, or just ignore the ruling and begin sending people to Rwanda. Um, and th this article goes on to say Deputy Conservative Party Chairman Lee Anderson, who is consistently outspoken on the issue of illegal immigration, said on Wednesday that the government should ignore the international law and put the planes in the air to Rwanda. He says, I think the British people have been very patient and I've been very patient and now they're demanding action. And this has some sort of forced our hand a little bit now, he told reporters. My take is that we should just put the planes in the air now and send them to Rwanda and show strength. It's time for the government to show real leadership and send them back the same day. 
And that's from a uh, NPR article about the UK Supreme Court Rwanda asylum policy. And the crazy thing is, is that like, I agree that the UK in any country has the right to defend its borders and to do what they can. I just don't know how this whole system works. Like I get the main idea, right? But I don't know how it works in terms of using another country to determine if people are actually can claim asylum in the UK. Uh, I, I like, I get the idea. I think it's actually a good idea because the UK is technically like, okay, I'm not saying the UK is small. It's not small. It is a country. It is a good sized country, but it's not as big, let's say as the United States, Russia, uh, China, other places like that. So therefore, they probably don't want the influx of immigrants they have been experiencing through the English Channel to basically overwhelm the immigration system. So I can understand that because that's honestly what's happening at the southern border in the United States. And if the United States is having an immigration problem as well, how wouldn't a smaller nation like the UK also have a similar issue or even worse? Uh, I don't think that their issue is worse than ours. I think the southern border is chaotic and it's actually worse than uh, what the UK government is dealing with now. It comes down to the fact that they should do something about it. And if this is the solution then good for them? Uh, because I, could, I couldn't imagine what would happen if a congressman in the U.S. said, hey, we're going to send them to this country and then they can come back. But basically, I don't know how that could work because it's like, I mean, listen, as I said, if it works, it works. I'm not going to say it's wrong or right because um, <laughs> I, I think it's a good idea in general because, as I said, if they don't do something like this, their immigration process or facilities might get overwhelmed and strained and resources strained. Uh, but basically, uh, I'm hoping for a, uh, immigration story to come up eventually in the U S like a big one so that I can talk about it because, uh, I have a lot of different ideas in terms of how the U S can actually figure out what to do in terms of fixing the Southern border problem, because there's multiple things that we need to do. But one of them is not building a wall because guess what? There's already a lot of wall built and people are still pouring in. You know, it's just the reality that we live in now. All right, but thank you for tuning in and I'll see you tomorrow morning. Bye-bye.